the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we're talking about the power of place. We have a very special guest, Martin Gray, who's a world-class photographer and anthropologist. He specializes in the study of sacred sites. We're going to hear a whole lot about that today. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here. I know you travel a lot, and we're very happy to catch you while you're in Sedona. How's Sedona today? Well, it's lovely, uh, but I imagine it's going to heat up to probably 140 or 150 today. I'm being facetious, <laughs> but it's it's very warm here in the summer, warm and bright, but uh, uh, it's still a lovely, lovely place to live. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Now, you're, you have um, a book that was published in 2007. The title is Sacred Earth, Places of Peace and Power, and it's an, an absolutely remarkable compilation of sacred sites, photography, photographs of sacred sites from around the world that you have visited. Um, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create this collection. Well, my parents were in the diplomatic corps, and because of it, I got to travel a good bit around the world when I was young. And when I was 12 to 16, I actually lived in New Delhi, India, and I'd fallen in love with photography and archaeology before even getting there. And so once I got to India, um, I didn't actually, well, I went to school, but I was rather rebellious even then, and I began traveling around India on my own, which was in, in totally safe, still is, by the way. And I visited certain temples and shrines and certain pilgrimage sites, and I was really fascinated by that. And then one time when I was up in Kathmandu, Nepal, I had an experience, I guess I'd say of my first energetic experience of a power place, and it affected me so deeply that I thought at that point I would one day like to create a photographic atlas of pilgrimage sites in India. And then many, many, many years later, after returning to the United States, and I lived in an ashram for 10 years, and I've done a huge amount of meditation and continued my studies of archaeology, I began to have more of these, or what I say are visionary experiences that suggested to me that I might want to go out and visit a whole lot of these pilgrimage sites around the world. And I thought, that's a great idea. That will be a lot of fun. So now about 25 years has have passed, and I've done well over a hundred countries. But in that book, Sacred Earth, there's photographs from around eighty different countries, and I totally specialize in photographing sacred sites and pilgrimage shrines. Mm-hmm. I don't photograph birds and bugs yeah. and yeah. castles and people. <laughs> All I do is photograph sacred sites and the, the place. What makes a place a sacred site? Well, I would say there's a number of factors that, in my writings, I've actually delineated 20 different factors. 
and if I, I could say they're in three broad categories. One are what we might call the, the, say, the power of the earth, different geophysical anomalies that you will study, if, or if you study different power places or sacred sites, you'll find that there's some sort of energy dynamic there that is geophysically caused. Underground water, increased magnetism, higher levels of ionization uh, along fault lines, and somehow people in great antiquity, they felt these. They didn't have the scientific apparatus whereby they could measure them, but there was something they felt, and then out of that feeling, in a number of different ways, there became markings of those sites, usually by clumps of stone, unless they were a sacred mountain or a sacred spring, and then with the develop of civilization and social structures, people began living at these sites, and then what happened is you get the second sort of character or second sort of influence, and those are the structures that people build at these sites with sacred geometry and how the sites are aligned with certain celestial bodies or the rotational movement, the cyclical rotational movement of those celestial bodies. And the third, and what I really consider to be the most important, is human intention. And people go, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, as photographic film, if you expose it to light for a thousandth of a second, or uh, uh, there's tapes, a magnetic tape going in a tape recorder, and it hears something very, very short period of time, it remembers it, it records it. And so there is the possibility, and think of it as film and, and uh, magnetic tape and tape recorders, all they are is small pieces of the earth. So imagine that if you have a piece of the earth, such as a pilgrimage site, that tens of millions of human beings have come there and they spend longer than a hundredth of a second and they're there with religious devotion. That religious devotion, I feel, also with the religious devotion of all the people that built the site and the people that have been doing ceremony there, it has an effect, I think, of creating a certain sort of field of holiness or a power of wisdom that when we come to those places nowadays, it's very much like plugging into them, whereas you plug a light into a light socket, mm-hmm. it gets the energy of the place and it makes the light glow. And so I feel that when human beings go to these places and they plug into them, they're sort of benefiting from the energy of the site and the energy or holiness of the millions and millions of people that have gone there before them. So those are the three major factors that make a power place or a sacred site a place of some energy that other people can benefit from. Hmm. And so I think I've read that you said that oftentimes um, modern-day cathedrals have been built on sites like this. Did I read that right? Yeah, so then what we have to do is we have to have a differentiation between the period of time that the cathedral was built. And pretty much in Europe... It's not in, 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 you know, in the rest of the world. If there's some cathedrals built in the United States, they're not old. But pre-Reformation pilgrimage shrines in Europe, that means before the Reformation, most of these were built upon sites that were, whether it was the Romans or the pagans or the Celtic or the Beaker culture or whatever, there were certain sites on the planet that they considered to be, have a certain power that they had made into sacred sites. And then Christianity comes into Europe and they wanted political and economic and religious control of Europe. So basically what they did is they tore down the pagan shrines and they built a church at that place. And then they 
dedicated the shrine to a Christian saint. Usually they weren't saints, by the way, but to a Christian saint who happened to be born or died on the very day that the pagans had said was sacred at that site. So what you see is Christianity taking over the pilgrimage sacred sites of other religions. But I mean, of, of, yeah, of other religions before Christianity. But this happened with lots of other places. For example, Buddhism. Buddhism, by and large, took over most of the sacred sites of the cultures before it. So we can't really criticize only Christianity, but it happens. This is sort of a pattern of other religions, too. Interesting. And so religion really has nothing to do with sacred sites. I mean, sacred sites did not um, create the concept of religion. It was just an energy that people were attracted to where they felt that um, their intentions could be honored. Well, I would say yes and no, or both. There are certain sacred sites or places that are considered to be sacred on the planet that have a pre-existing, they were long before they were sacred, forever before they were sacred by human beings, they were power places. They have this geophysical energy anomaly. And then some of them were discovered by people, and then they were given sanctity by the virtue of tradition. But you'll find other sites, for example, a lot of the Islamic Sufi sites, there's no evidence that they were uh, sacred, they were power places before there were any usage of them. But there are places where a, a certain Sufi saint lived, for example, and many pilgrims came or people came to be with that saint. And then when the saint passes away, there's a shrine built for the saint, and people come, continue to come there, and thereby the place gets charged by the energy of human intention. So you'll have both. Not all power places become sacred sites, and not all sacred sites are power places in the sense of geophysical anomalies. So there's a difference there, and I think it's important to understand that difference. Right. So some of the places on the earth that um, are where we cannot explain how physically things have occurred, you know, and when you're thinking about the pyramids in Egypt or Easter Island or, I mean, there's plenty of places around the world where we as human beings think, hmm, you know, how could they have lifted those stones, you know, and built this structure? It doesn't make physical sense in the human form. Are those the kind of places, excuse me, that have, that you would consider sacred? Well, again, it's more complex than that. When we look at Egypt, and particularly the Giza Plateau, there are two types of pyramids. There's the Great Pyramid, and there's everything else. And all the other periods, pyramids were built at different periods of dynastic Egypt. There is not one shred of evidence that any way, shape, or form indicates that the Great Pyramid has anything to do with dynastic Egyptians, though most contemporary Egyptologists will say, oh, it's for Khufu or Cheops. And then I say, isn't it interesting, there's not one single mummy that has ever been found in any Egyptian pyramid. And then they'll go, yeah, that's true. So even in Egypt, we have to say there's two types, but there's other places in Egypt, Philae, the Sphinx, a number of other places that are, there is a lot of evidence that they were holy places before the genesis of Egyptian dynastic culture. But then when you look at something like Easter Island, Easter Island, it's a complex one too, because Easter Island, the people on Easter Island, it's really not very old. 
So once they came there, and there's a lot of theories about how they got there, but once they came there, then there's a, a very interesting religious culture that started that had a very bloody ending, by the way, but most New Age people, they don't want to hear about that. But the amazing thing about Easter Island, that if you study global sacred geography or geomancy, there are a number of different mathematical let's say, reasons that it would be there, but there aren't any geological reasons that it would be right where it is. Graham Hancock, a friend of mine, he actually wrote the preface for my most recent book. He's got a book out called Heaven's Mirror, which examines this in a lot of detail, and it's a great mystery. Why is Easter Island exactly where it is? It doesn't make geophysical, geological sense, but there it is. And there is, indeed, some sort of power at that site that will, for sensitive people have an effect. Or what I'd say is it has an effect for everybody, but the sensitive people are sensitive to it, are aware of it. There's a big difference there between, you know, it's like what I'd say is if someone goes in to an air-conditioned room, everybody feels it, but some people might be aware of it's from an air conditioner. They could explain it, but other people they can't, but they still experience it. Right, right. Oh, this is really interesting. Well, we have more to talk about when we come back after this break. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway. It's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. 
When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back. This is Cheryl Esposito, Leading Conversations. And we're speaking with Martin Gray today, world-class photographer and anthropologist. Before we went to break, Martin, you were speaking about the power of some of the sacred sites around the world. And you mentioned that there is an energy that people can feel, they can actually feel, and that you've had early in your life, you had started experiencing some of those energetic experiences and have continued to have that as you have moved through the world. Can you explain, is there a way to explain to people what this feels like? How would they know if they were experiencing this, if they, you know, hadn't before? Well, there's a few ways that I want to address that. First of all, if you study the deities that are venerated at a sacred site, they're either going to be a masculine or a feminine deity. You don't see this in Christianity, but you see this in Hinduism, Hinduism being the richest of the contemporary religions that talks about this. So you'll see Shiva in Parvati. You'll see Saraswati in Brahma. So these different deities, and sometimes they are metaphorical expressions of whether there is a yin or yang, a masculine or feminine quality of that particular sacred site. Then another thing that's really fascinating in Hinduism is you have a multiplicity of deities, each with different personality characteristics, and these are a further metaphorical indication of how the power of place might affect you there. For example, Kali never existed with 16 heads. It just didn't happen. What is it saying to us? It's saying to us that, and if you look at all of the arms of Kali, she's going to be holding different things in each one of her hands, and those are metaphorical, again, of the power of place, of the very, very particular and specific quality of that place. Then we come to the part of your question that talks about, well, how will somebody be, know they're experiencing something? That's a difficult one to say because what we've got to do is, first of all, be able to subtract or factor out the experiences or the ideas that people might be having when they come there. And so we get to the place where it's just the pure experience that people are having. But as people come with these new age notions that, oh, it means this or it means that, a lot of times the notions get in the way of our experience. 
So what I say to people is leave your notions at home. Leave your crystals and your all of these different things, what you think is going to be ceremony there. Leave it all home and come to the place as if you were a giraffe, as if you were a leopard. Come to a place as if your mentation, your mental, your vocalization process is not getting in the way and you are truly sensing, truly feeling the place. You don't come with any New Age notion. You just come like you're plugging in. And if you think, if you plug in a wearing blender into the wall, it doesn't have this idea. Idea. All it is, it's an energy conduit. The energy passing from the wall, from the electrical generating system into the wearing blender. So what I say to people is come there and meditate if you wish, but don't meditate with some notion about, oh, this is the, the most appropriate Buddhist meditation technique. Remove Buddhism from it. Just get in touch with the energy of the place. Take a nap. Play. You don't have to do anything, anything serious at all. Just be there. That's all. Just be there. And there will be a variety of experiences you could have. And according to the freedom, the mental freedom and conceptual freedom that you come to the site, and according to your ability to just slow down and take it in, then usually people are going to feel, generally, they're going to feel more at ease, a sense of peace. But some of these sites have a quality of energy that is very, let's say, strong, and it may stir people up psychologically. It may suggest to them or almost force them to look at things in their own psyche that they hadn't wanted to look at before. So it's really important to consider that not all power places or sacred sites do the same thing. Mm, That's a really good point, and and it seems to me that what you've done is just absolutely given people pure freedom to uh, experience this. I know that people kind of set themselves up a bit about, oh, I can't feel energy, or oh, I don't know how to meditate, or oh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They put all these layers on themselves, and so they can't feel anything that's really going on. And, you know, it's interesting to me how we have evolved as humans to the point where we are forgetting our natural state, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it sounds to me that what you're saying is that if people can let go of their perceptions, the capacity to be in that natural state heightens a lot. Yes, and what I'd say is if they can't let go of their concepts, Maybe they're not going to have a perception, but the energy, the effect will still happen. Um. And a lot of times, 10 years, maybe a week, maybe a year, maybe 10 years later, people will go, aha, I experienced something, but I was in my own way conceptually, so I wasn't even aware of what was already there. So what I say is it's like planting a seed. Sometimes you plant a seed, and maybe in a few weeks it germinates and starts coming up. Maybe it's a few months, but the seed is there. And so when people go to these places, something happens inside of them in their body or their mind, and even if they can't actually at that point say it's this or it's that, just by going into the power of place, the field, there's a sort of density of holiness that saturates and surrounds these places, and just being inside of that field has a beneficial effect, even if you can't explain it, even if you can't consciously experience it. Mm, that's fascinating. Well, it sounds to me like we have a lot to learn from ancient cultures 
who simply seem to walk in this kind of, of energy. When you look at ancient cultures and the, um, the way that cultures developed over time, and you look at today and who we are and how we are as human beings on this earth, um, do you see similarities or are we absolutely so different that there's no, no way to compare? We're absolutely the same. Absolutely and totally the same. So then what it becomes a matter of is the scale of the development. And what you see happening on the planet today, the big driver, the great problem, is burgeoning or expanding population growth and access to technology. It's all about food, clothing, and shelter. We all want those things. But when you're in Paleolithic times, and this is pre-Bronze you know, pre Age, way, way, way back then, people couldn't make anything other than chipping a couple of arrowheads and making some pottery and weaving together some weed, uh, reeds. But it was still material technology. They were making something. But now as we've gotten more advanced, we can do something finer and finer and finer, such as making computer chips. But all it is is human beings creating something for food, clothing, and shelter. And by shelter, it's just an extenuation of, you know, people taking care of themselves. But human beings have always been human beings. We all have the same sort of drives. Nowadays, a problem is, is people live in big cities, big building blocks. They live up at the top of a 16th, a 40th story um, building, and they're, in, you know, they're involved in, let's say, Wall Street. And they hardly ever get out and just be in a forest. So there's this sort of disassociation from the natural world, and to me, that's sad. And very few people actually take the time to go into the redwoods, to go into the Grand Canyon, to go into some place that there are no wires. There isn't wireless. There are, there are no telephones. It's just you in a tree, you in a rock, you in a valley. I think that is incredibly important nowadays for people to do that. And sometimes people say, oh, well, my guru. And I say the best guru is a rock. The best yeah. guru is a tree. Just go out and be with natural forms that haven't gotten confused like most human beings have gotten confused by economics and religious overlays. Interesting. And so what do you see happening with um, what's been labeled kind of the green surge? You know, people all of a sudden are, are buying into the idea that the environment's in trouble and we're in trouble and we have to do something about it. You know, we hit this tipping point and boom, it's everywhere. What, what, what do you think about this? Well, one of the things I do is I usually look beyond face value. People will say this or that, and I'll go, okay, I hear you, but let's look deeper than that. Why is the this or that being a this or that? What influence gave rise to this thing? Then I also say there's two types of people in the planet. There's the haves and the have-nots. And for the haves, it's very easy to talk about green and ecology and all that. But if you're in Darfur, where I've been, those people, first of all, there's no green, by the way, but those are have-nots, and they don't have the luxury to talk about the things that the haves have. They're just trying to get by with the basics in life. They're trying to keep their, kill, their children from being killed. That's a big one. So 
I think it's really wonderful to talk about an environmental awareness and an awakening of this, but it's generally only happening in the rich, Western, developed nations. I've been all over China. I've been all over India. It is not happening there. These people are interested in one thing, and that's having what the rich, Western nations have. So we always got to qualify it. Who are we speaking about? And not to have the arrogance to say, just because I'm experiencing something, it means everybody in the world is. That's not the truth. Right, right. And so what do we do with that? I mean, if, in fact, we have this culture of the wealthy who are saying, oh, you know, we have to pay attention to the environment, how then do they take that energy and help the, as you call them, the have-nots to achieve the basics? I mean, is there a connection? Well, yes and no, and then it gets more complicated than that. This notion of helping the have-nots, it's the rich, it's almost like it's modern day, it's imperialism. It's like what colonialism was. I mean, I'm looking at a, a map of Africa now, and there's all these straight lines on it. And they, they get in the way of sort of bioregional cultures and social groupings. And the Europeans came in and they said, oh, well, this straight line between Libya and Chad, there's no, if you go over there, I've been over there, and you get up in an airplane looking down at the ground, you don't see this big red line going, this is Libya and this is right. Chad. And personally, I think a whole lot of the problems that are happening in Africa are because these European nations came in and basically they didn't care about the people. All they wanted is access to their resources and then they divided everything up between themselves. The British get this, the Portuguese get that, the Dutch get this, the Spanish get that. You know, no respect whatsoever of the local people. That's a really, really big problem. But then what can people do now? What can people do here? And I say, if people are in an economic and environmental situation whereby they can do something, then what you should do is see, oh, I live in a bioregion and I live right now. You don't live in 2074. You don't live in 1850. You don't, if you're living in America, you're not living in Tanzania at the same time. So what I say is think locally. Truly think locally. Take care of your bioregion, what you can do now. And human beings, for most part, human beings only can have an effect upon temporary while they're living where they're living. So I say to people, get really focused on the present and where you're living in your bioregion and do something good here. Just do something good here. Then let the rest of the world do what it does. If you're like me, that you have some work that has a lot of effect all over the world, great. But if you don't and you just live in rural Nebraska, you know, deal with it there. Take care of something there. And if that means only bringing up your daughter well, that's fine. You don't have to save the people in Tanzania. And by the way, you can't. That's a really good point. Be present. We're going to be right back after this message. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity. But being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back speaking with Martin Gray, world-class photographer and anthropologist specializing in the study of sacred sites. Now, Martin, you've had the privilege of traveling the world and um, experiencing these sites that you have photographed, and you said that there's over 80 countries represented in, um, the photo- in the book that you have published, and how many photos are there? I forget how many photos there's there are. There's approximately 200. Wow. How lovely. Now, what kind of um, impact is this book having when you are sharing it around the world? Well, it brings about, I think, an increasing understanding of the necessity of religious pluralism so that the Christians don't vilify Islam and the Jews don't vilify the Christians. Because if you really consider it deeply... There's just one spirit making everybody alive, everybody breathe. There's only one God. And any time you hear somebody saying, well, my God is best or my religion is best, it's an immediate indication that the person hasn't thought very deeply or they're being uh, compelled, they're being programmed by some sort of belief. So I think religious pluralism is really, really valuable. I think it's really nice if there's a protection of art and architecture, the great sacred art and architecture of the planet. I think that's great. I think one of the really, really important things that people are getting out of this is by looking at these photographs, even if somebody can't go, like for example right now, you can't go to you know, a place called Medway in Sudan. You can't go to certain places that I've been around the world, but almost you don't have to. By looking at those photographs, I don't even consider them photographs really, they're windows to me, and so by looking at them, in a sense, you can, you're looking at the place, you're looking out of a window into the place, and some quality, almost a homeopathic essence of the quality comes through that, and it has an influence upon the awakening and catalyzation of consciousness in you. So even though a lot of the people, and there's tens of thousands of people with that book now on their you know, living room tables, I don't know who they are. They're all over the world. People are looking at them, and they're getting 
let's say again that visual homeopathic essence of the sites. I feel that's perhaps the most beautiful thing. And if people, in looking at some of those photographs, they feel a real attraction to certain places, to me, that's almost like an oracle, like the I Ching, it's an oracle, or the tarot, it's an oracle. It's the earth saying, oh, come here, come to me here, and the quality of energy here might be beneficial to something you're going through now. So I think that's an effect that the book is having. Well, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense because it does seem that when people look at art of different cultures or um, ruins of different cultures, they're... There is no judgment in it. They don't have the same conversation that they have about religious beliefs or that they have um, about, you know, how different people live their life. There's almost an honoring of the past and an honoring of the representation of the culture because of the art or because of the architecture. Yes, you know, that's a really good point you bring up. And that's the neat thing because there's no sort of religious uh, overlay in architecture and archaeology. They just look at something, whether it's Roman or Greek or early Hindu or this or that, it's an architectural structure. It's an archaeological site. And I think that's wonderful that there's not religion involved. Maybe once you get there, you'll go, oh, there was some religion practiced Mm -hmm. here. We don't really know what it is, 3000 B.C. It's just a supposition. But by people going to the places, you know, they're free of sort of the religious conceptualization. But a problem there, again, is, you know, you have a lot of fundamentalist Christians going into Central Africa saying, you know, the Mormons, for example, things have got to be done this way. No, they don't got to be done that way. Do it in Utah if you want, but don't take it over to Nigeria or Angola or Zambia. You don't want to do that. Go over and be with the people as they are there. Don't import your own cultural notions about how they should be there based on how it is in Milwaukee. So it's a matter of of being part of so that we can learn from that and then somehow integrate it into our own being. That's what I feel, yes. Hmm. Well, then I imagine you must be quite a complex person given that you've had so much exposure to all these different cultures. There must have been so much learning for you. Um, well, that's true, and another thing is I do a great amount of research. I Again, I don't look at things just at face value. I read it, you know, in this room that I'm standing in right now, there's around 2,500 history books. I've read them all. So before going to a place, I think people ought to take a parallel journey amongst the history, between in the history, the archaeology, the mythology, that's very important, of a place, of a culture, of a region. So when they go there, they have a deeper experience, an understanding of the place and a deeper experience of what they, they find there. So I, I don't think it's a good idea to just go. Well, go with some understanding beforehand. Also, I have a complex understanding of a lot of things just because, you know, my brain works that way. I just happen to think very deeply about something. Right, right. Well, and so that's a little bit contrasted to what you said earlier about um, not taking any preconceived or preconceptions with you to a place around its energy are a little different. 
Well, what I mean by that is don't go into the places with this, you know, sort of preformed religious indoctrination. But if you do some study about the history ah, of the place, okay, okay. then you're going to have a better understanding. But even if you don't do that, you know, like some people I find, you know, I think it's rather arrogant. They will have been, they took a three-week journey when they were, you know, 30 years ago when they are in a high school, and they went in a three-week period to four um, European countries. You know, that's really not very much experience of travel. So here's Martin, who's been in around 120 countries since he was a little boy. And it gives me, I think, a, a, a sort of larger or broader vantage point um, from which I say certain things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so for people who, um, whether they are in the United States or whether they are in Europe or on the African continent or other areas of the world, if they don't have the opportunity to travel, can they still experience some of the energy of place through some of that reading or through looking at your book? Or, I mean, is there a way to, to have them experience it somewhat? Yes. I think, and by far the greatest thing to do is if people live wherever they live. They live in this area, Turtle Island, which long before, you know, Columbus and other murderers like him came over here, was just Turtle Island, was just a piece of land. It's not the United States. The United mm-hmm. States is a historical abstraction. But people are in a bioregion, in an area, in a larger region that has a quality, an energetic quality, and people can just go to those sites. And the wonderful thing about archaeology is a lot of times it's an indication to you of where those sites are. For example, in New Mexico, there's this place called Chaco Canyon, which was very, very important to the Anasazi. We don't know who those were. That's a Hopi word, meaning the ancient ones. But it's this very, very, very old sacred site, power place. So through archaeology, people can get an idea of, oh, here was this ruin, and why did the people build the ruin there? Even if we don't understand their religion, we can go, they, the ancient people felt that this was a special place, and I think I'll go. Then, smaller or lesser effect, I think, by looking at these photographs, and somebody could say, Martin, you know, that's not provable and that's arrogant, but I think it's possible for there, again, to be some sort of energetic transmission by virtue Mm -hmm. of people looking through these windows onto the places. But most important thing is, I think, you know, leave home. That's not running away if you're 17. Leave home, go on a journey, and it doesn't mean three, th- three days over the weekend. Take a bit of time and go to one of these places and spend some time there, meditate there, and just be there. Because the whole earth is sacred. You know, there's no particular place in a sense of you think about acupuncture. The whole body is sacred. For some reason or another, there's certain acupuncture points along these meridians, but the whole body is alive. Same thing with the earth. Whole earth is alive. And if one has a certain sort of love in one's heart, it almost predisposes one to an easier connection into this earth energy. Hmm. And so we're going to go to break, but after we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about the idea that, um, you know, the earth is billions of years old and we now have this belief that's permeating our culture, the culture of the have, that says um, the earth is in trouble. And I want to talk about that with you when we come back after this break. Okay. 
the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexsaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back speaking with Martin Gray today. Martin, before we went to break, we were talking about how there is this belief that um, even though the Earth has been around for billions of years, that somehow the Earth is in trouble now. And, um, you know, I'm wondering about that because won't the Earth still be here billions of years from now? Well, I think definitely the Earth is going to be here billions of years from now, but there's never been a time, geologically speaking, that we're aware of that there has been a dominant species like Homo sapiens. And I don't know if you know this, know this but Homo sapiens in Latin means wise being. And I find that sort of ironical. Here's these wise beings. And, you know, tigers don't call them whatever we call them. Here's these wise beings destroying the planet. I think that's a great irony. But there's never been a time where there has been a dominant species on the planet that is wrecking the planet. And somebody could say, we're not doing that. And I go, well, why is it that 40% of the world's corals have disappeared in the last number of years? Why are the glaciers melting everywhere? Why is this North Pole disappearing? Why is the ozone disappearing? The ozone hole happening. All of these things are, you know, they're caused by human beings. Now, I think a lot of times people say, oh, well, there's, there's no problem. And I go, you go over to southern, uh, southern Sudan and you're going to see a great, great problem. And again, as I said earlier in this interview, the biggest driver of all the problems are expanding population growth and access to technology. Hmm. We have no effect whatsoever upon population growth. There's nothing we can do. And access to technology, I mean, look at China. As I often say, everybody in China wants an iPod. Now, Mm -hmm. I think iPods are neat. You can drive around and you got this nice music. But the footprint, people don't, you know, again, let's look deeper than face value. People don't look at what's the footprint of that iPod. What took, what, how was that iPod made? What are all the resources that went into that iPod? And then you got that factory that makes the iPod. Well, go outside the factory and, oh, there's pollution coming out of the factory and where it's going. It's going up into the air or it's leaching down into the water, down into the groundwater water that we're, we're later drinking. So these are, they're unavoidable. These are things that I say we can't not do them. 
You know, India, the population in India, where I lived for four years, I've been watching it. It's just out of proportion it's growing. Yeah. And we can't tell these people to do this or to do that. We, we, we can't. It's not morally right. Right. There's nothing well, we can know, do. Some of these, um, you know, with that, with the there's not a we can do, and, and some of the issues around the world seem so daunting that I, I wonder how it is that, People can remain hopeful. Do you remain hopeful? Well, yes and well, no. When I come down from this, you know, sort of lofty spiritual idea, which I could talk about in a minute, and I'm just here, when I'm in some of these places where I see these, this great suffering and where children are dying of malnutrition and the women are being gang-raped by, you know, terrorists, it's hard for me to be hopeful. It's really hard. Really, really hard. But if I pull far enough back, you know, ultimately, here's this big, big, big set of galaxies. And if you look out there far enough, you're going to see some of these intersecting spiral galaxies. And is this a mistake or is this in just some unfathomable way God being God to God? It's just nature happening. It's just whatever it is happening. Or another good example you know, Indonesia is this great island archipelago, a lot of islands, nobody's on them, a lot of life on them, but no human beings, and then there's a storm, and a lightning bolt comes down, and it starts a fire on that island, and untold number of bugs and birds and animals are killed. Is this evil? Is this wrong? Is this a mistake? Or is it nature being nature to nature? I mean, the island's nature, the life, lightning bolt's nature, all of these animals are nature, but they all die. And so if we pull back far enough, we're going to have to consider that God is not making a mistake on this planet. There's just something happening that we human beings with our little understandings don't understand, and which is causing us some personal pain, but that does not mean it's wrong. Well, and so, you know, that begs the question around all of these climate, global climate changes and what's happening with the glaciers, etc. Some say that's just evolution. I think uh, I'd I'd have a hard time. Ultimately, I'd have to say, yeah, it's evolution. But to me, and it's almost my saying I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. It's just what's happening. It's almost unavoidable. And I hear these people all said, say all every so often say, oh well, if we would have been different in the past, if we would have made different decisions, we can't not. If you take people in Paleolithic times and they settle into villages, then there is this acquirement of resources, then there's the trading of them, then there's the protection of them, and then it just all comes from there. And if we started it all over again, it's the same thing. We have a closed ecosystem and we have competition for resources, and it doesn't matter how exalted your spiritual notions are you want to eat you want to feed you want to feed yourself you want to have shelter the bears do it the butterflies do it all biological species are interested in maximizing those three things food clothing and shelter and i think if people got that then it would take this burden of guilt off of them about the suffering of the planet about the loss of the ecosystem i mean it's happening but we don't have to personally feel guilty for it because we didn't cause it there's just this big boulder rolling downhill and the population of the planet is in the way of that there's nothing that can be done about that. Absolutely nothing. And I challenge anybody to try to talk me out of that because sometimes people do. And I'll say a few things and they'll go, oh, I see what you mean. You're looking deeper at the subject than I've been looking. 
And so I, I think what I'm hearing you say then is that the best thing people can do, that a person can do, is to be present wherever they are in order to be connected and be the best they can be in that moment. Is that true? Yeah, and earlier I said if you're in an economic and environmental situation whereby you can. But then if you go, you know, to, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, or Central African Republic, these people are certainly not in an, an environment. And by environment, I also mean the economic situation, too. Yeah. They're not in a place where they can just kick back and say, oh, I'm just going to be present. If they're, no, man, somebody's going to come there and rape them and kill them. And if some new ager says, oh, that's not happening, I feel like let's put you on a jumbo jet and fly you over to southern Ethiopia and not let you have any food for a few weeks, and then you tell me it's not happening. It definitely right absolutely is happening. And so the people there, there's not much they can do. And to me, that's really, really sad. So again, if you're living in the United States and you're living in Northern California and you got enough money and you live in this bioregion and everybody's growing organic around you, thank your lucky stars that they're, right. you're there. And then as I often say, some way, in some way, express gratitude. You know, again, you're embedded in this situation. Say thank you. If you're in this position that we're in, you and I are in it. Here we are, the miracle of modern technology. I'm not where you are, but we're talking somehow. If you've got this, if you live in this situation, to me... Look, you're eating the food of the earth. You're wearing the clothes. It's all from the earth. Your car is from the earth. Everything is a gift the earth is giving to you. So how can you say thank you back? To me, that's crucial. We take, 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 take. Take, 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 take. I'd say slow down a little bit and go, oh, something is being given. Air is being given. Food is being given. All of this is being given to me as a gift. I'm so lucky. How can I say thank you back? How can I put goodness and beauty into the world? That's what I tell people to do. That is perfect. That is absolutely perfect, Martin. This has been a, a very interesting conversation, and I so appreciate you being here today. You well, have thanks for some great so questions, much, too. You know, so much to think about and so much to do, and yet simply being and being in gratitude may be the most powerful thing we can be. So I know people are going to want to um, know about more about your book and how to get it, and you know some people may want to contact you. So how how can they do that? Well, I've got this website, which is pretty easy to remember. It's just sacredsites.com, and if somebody forgets that, just open up Google and put in the word sacred site, and you're going to find me. Or put in Angkor Wat. I think I'm number three or four on Google now, or Machu Picchu or Stonehenge or any of these, and sacredsites.com is going to pop up. And then people can buy the book, which is called Sacred Earth. They can buy it on the website, or they can have their bookseller order it for them. They can walk into Barnes & Noble. You know, the book is is widely available. So basically the thing is go to sacredsites.com, and there's many more photographs there and a lot more detailed writings and very extensive bibliographies and maps showing the locations of these sacred places all over the world. So sometimes people say, well, Martin, what are you saying in these interviews? And I go, well, people can get the information from my website, my books. Let me tell you what happened to me while I was there. That's great. Martin, everybody's going to be very interested in that. Thanks so much for being with us today on Leading Conversations. It's been a privilege. So remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. 
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.